For more information on today's podcast, check out the update series 2022 Lesson 16 AUA ASRM Infertility Guideline Critique. Subscriptions are now available on the AUA University at auanet.org backslash university. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Raman, and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the Office of Education for the AUA. Uh, it's my pleasure to host another one of our educational podcasts with this specific episode focusing on the 2020 AUA ASRM infertility guidelines. And it's really my pleasure to uh, welcome Dr. Akansha Mehta, who is uh, Associate Professor of Urology at the Emory University School of Medicine. Uh, she completed her uh, undergrad uh, medical school and her residency at uh, Brown, and then uh, followed thereafter doing a fellowship in uh, male reproduction and sexual medicine at uh, Cornell Medical Center. Uh, at present, she's the Director of Male Reproductive Health at uh, Emory, and she's actually the Residency Program Director as well. So, Akancha, first of all, on the eve of the AUA, thank you so much for taking a, a little bit of time to speak with us. Really appreciate your, your time and your expertise. Thank you so much, uh, Jay, for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this. Great. Well, so maybe I'll just start off and, and just ask you just a broad question, which is, um, the, 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 the guidelines that were issued in 2020, I think the prior iteration from that was maybe eight or nine years before that, and maybe just give us a little bit of a sense for the listeners of who sort of compiled into this guidelines panel, what were maybe some of the, the new information or the new stakeholder groups that helped formulate this panel? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, the prior version of this document was actually a 2011 uh, best practice statement put forth by the AUA. And um, that document looks very, very different compared to this updated guideline. Um, a few key differences, you know, the um, the stakeholders that put together that original document were primarily urologists, primarily those focused in this arena of male reproductive urology. But this new guideline is much more comprehensive. Um, first of all, a lot of new evidence has accumulated between you know, 2011 and 2020. And, and this guideline, which is truly an evidence-based document, takes all of that into account. It's also a very multidisciplinary panel of stakeholders. So there are not only urologists on here, but also reproductive endocrinologists. There is a patient representative um, and uh, you know, subject matter experts in terms of reviewing the literature as well and weighing the evidence. So it's a much more robust document for a variety of reasons. So, you know, I, I, it's always hard to summarize an entire guidelines into maybe a few key take-home points. But maybe if I could ask you, what what do you think are are some of the the most important takeaways? And then obviously, uh, in, in the next bit, we'll dive into some of the more specific elements. But maybe what are some of the key takeaways and key points from these updated guidelines? Yeah, I think there are several key points that emerge. First of all, uh, you know, we know now that male factor is so important to the overall reproductive outcome for an infertile couple. And this guideline really puts 
the importance of male factor diagnosis, evaluation, and treatment front and center. Um, it sort of emphasizes, you know, when we time this evaluation, how comprehensive it needs to be, what should be part of that evaluation, and what shouldn't be. There are so many detailed tests now available for the evaluation of male factor, but not all need to be done in every single setting. So really sort of trying to understand what test is indicated when and where those details are going to be useful. Um, you know, this guideline kind of packages all that into one single document. So I guess one of the questions I would ask you is, um, when you look at doing an infertility evaluation, um, are, are there certain, and maybe this is really specifically for not only those in practice, but trainees, when should we be doing those? What, what is maybe the, the specific scenarios? What's the time course that a couple should be trying um, to conceive at which point a more detailed evaluation should be performed? Yeah, this is a great question because it comes up all the time, you know, in our resident education, but also with patients, right? So I always try to remind patients that um, human beings are not the most fecund species out there. Our monthly rate of successful conception is only about 25% um, in best case scenario. So you have to sort of balance the patients not freaking out if they're not able to conceive after one or two months of unprotected intercourse with you know not having to wait too, too long to diagnose an underlying problem. Generally, we say, you know, infertility is, is strictly defined as a year of unprotected intercourse, but you have to weigh that uh, along with other factors, for example, the female partner's age, we know that fertility in women declines at a much faster rate than it does in men, and it's closely associated to advancing age, particularly in the late 30s. So, you know, these guidelines emphasize the fact that, yes, traditional, uh, you know, uh, traditional definition of infertility is that 12 month of unprotected intercourse. But for couples where the female partner is older, 35 and older, really, we should be shortening that interval to just about six months. And if mm -hmm. they have been having unprotected intercourse for at least six months, then a fertility evaluation is definitely warranted. Now, if a couple comes in, you know, earlier than that, and they want a fertility evaluation, you don't have to necessarily decline that, but I wouldn't wait, you know, longer than six months for couples where the female partner is older or 12 months where even the female partner is less than 35 years of age. And, and I feel like I'm preaching to the choir here a little bit, right? But I feel like, you know, you would certainly agree, and I'm sure that the, the data is there that, um, that, that, we should be looking at and evaluating if we go down this road, right? Both the men and the women almost simultaneously, right? And, and that that there's going to be significant. I don't know what the percentages are. You probably do, but there's going to be a significant percentage which are male factor, or female factor, or maybe a combination of factors. And so, evaluating simultaneously is that is that sort of the the, the party line? Absolutely. Uh, uh, we should be evaluating simultaneously. And that's a point that was not really emphasized so much in the previous iteration of this document, but is very much emphasized in this guideline. There's no reason to wait to evaluate the male 
uh, partner until after you have evaluated the female partner. 50% of the time, there is some male factor contribution, mm. even if it's not, you know, severe enough to be causing subfertility, um, there is some underlying factor that could improve, you know, fertility potential for that couple. So, um, so, so doing that early is important for that reason. But the second thing is that the male partner evaluation is easy. I mean, so much easier than the female partner evaluation. You really shouldn't wait um, definitely simultaneously. And those of us that practice, you know, in close collaboration with our REI partners know this, this is very easy to execute simultaneously. But even if um, you are in a urology group that's not necessarily collaborating with an REI or GYN group, you know, don't wait to start your male patient evaluation. Don't wait for their partners to complete their evaluation. Do that right away. Makes sense. So, so I feel like one of the challenges as, as urologists in a subspecialty, whether it's infertility or cancer, is when, when folks come into the office and men come into the office, we almost dive bomb right down on their specific issue. They're coming in for infertility. They're coming in with a cancer diagnosis. They're coming in with a stone. But, but tell us a little bit about in the subfertile or the infertile male, um, there's probably more going on with that patient beyond just their infertility. And, and is this sort of a broader sign or, or symptom of their overall disease state? And, and what are some of the other associations we should be thinking about? Yeah, this is another great question. And this is where patient counseling becomes so important. You know, male factor infertility or subfertility is really kind of a reflection of overall health for our male patients in many cases. Not always. I mean, there can certainly be underlying genetic issues or anatomic issues, but there are often lifestyle factors or other health comorbidities that are playing a role in terms of testicular function. Um, and when I'm talking to patients, I always tell them, you know, to think of it as sort of a game of limited resources. If your body has to take resources away from some organ to devote to dealing with your diabetes or your cancer or other inflammatory conditions, then it may take those resources away from testicular function and sperm production. So to the extent that we can optimize their overall health, um, you know, we should do that because it's only going to help their fertility potential. Initially, we were so tied to the semen analysis. We always thought that, you know, everything we did had to improve semen parameters in order for it to improve fertility. But now we know that the semen analysis is a good but still imperfect assessment of their fertility. So there are ways of improving their fertility potential and improving sperm quality, for example, that may not be captured on a semen analysis necessarily, but that we know are, you know, very much the truth. For example, smoking cessation, you know, smoking affects so many things and, you know, has an effect on, on cancer as well, but it also affects sperm quality. Um, and it may not be reflected on a semen analysis, but we know that the sperm DNA fragmentation, for example, is impaired in men who smoke. So um, making sure that we do that deep dive into their overall lifestyle factors, their overall health, um, how they're managing that is really important. And what about, you talked a little bit about, about smoking and, and, and that seems like a very 
in theory, modifiable risk factor, particularly if, if a patient is coming and seeing you and, and they're about to go down this process of perhaps a, a thorough and maybe even expensive evaluation for, for infertility. What about uh, as a corollary to smoking marijuana use? What, what's the data on marijuana use and, and fertility or miscarriage rates or, or any of those? Yeah, it's interesting, actually, since the publication of these guidelines, there have been um, papers published about both of those things. So cigarette smoking, as well as uh, oh. marijuana use um, that have put forth, you know, good evidence that it has direct impact on um, miscarriage rates, for example, and health of that pregnancy long term. And as far as cigarette smoking goes, you know, that uh, effect is almost dose dependent. You're smoking mm. half a pack, one pack a day, more than one pack a day. I mean, it's dramatic how much the impact uh, is uh, dose dependent. The literature on marijuana use is a little bit more complex to understand. There have certainly been some observational studies that have shown no difference in mar uh, with respect to marijuana use and you know reproductive outcomes. There have been other studies that have shown a difference. There was one paper that uh, was published earlier this year from uh, Jason Hedges' group, which is an animal study, so it's done in uh, rhesus macaw monkeys, but it shows, you know, a, a very clear effect of marijuana use on testicular size and um, hormonal production by the testis. Now, they did not find, you know, a correlation in terms of semen parameters again, but we know in theory that 80% of testicular volume comes from somatogenesis. So in theory, if you're decreasing testicular size and altering the hormonal milieu of the testis, eventually that will probably have an effect on sperm production. Perhaps we just haven't observed these you know, animals long enough. Um, so I think the, the evidence, uh, the, both the quality of the evidence and the amount of evidence that speaks to the importance of smoking cessation and the importance of at least cutting back on recreational marijuana use um, is there. You know, there are patients who will use marijuana every once in a while, but there are patients who use marijuana multiple times a day, every day. And those are two very different types of use patterns with very different implications for their fertility potential. Sure, sure. So I guess when you see um, men in your office, um, what are the scenarios or, or what are the clinical scenarios when you start to think to yourself, I need to get some type of genetic testing. I, I need to investigate this person further. Are, are there certain clinical clues or certain semen parameter findings that, that jump out to you that say, look, the data is pretty strong that we need to get this because there's a potential association with, with various uh, genetic uh, abnormalities. Yeah, so actually, you know, the male infertility workup is one of the few places where a physical exam is really, really useful um, because it can help you categorize many of these defects into different buckets, right? So for example, you can think of the man with isospermia, no sperm in the ejaculate, or even severe oligospermia, very few sperm in the ejaculate. And that can be due to an obstructive etiology or non-obstructive etiology. And genetic testing can play a role for men in both of those categories. 
So for example, in the men with obstruction, they may have unilateral absence of the vas deferens, they may have bilateral absence of the vas deferens. And these are conditions that are specifically associated with mutations in the cystic fibrosis gene. So CFTR testing in these men is a must do. And in addition to the standard CFTR panel, there is a specific allele called the 5 delta T allele that um, is very closely associated with male fertility. So that allele should be tested, certainly. And when we have patients that turn out to be positive for one of these mutations, then of course, you know, having their partners tested is also very important because they may be asymptomatic carriers of this mutation for this recessive disease. And if their partner is the same, then, you know, we may be putting that future child at risk for the actual disease manifestation. So genetic testing, as well as genetic counseling to help them understand exactly what the odds are um, you know, is indicated for those couples. On the flip side, in the men with severe oligospermia or non-obstructive azospermia, genetic testing also plays an important role. And in this case, it's a slightly different type of test that we're doing. So we're doing karyotype evaluations, looking at the uh, presence of the appropriate number of chromosomes in the cells, so n no extra chromosomes and no fewer than 46, as well as looking at the X and Y chromosomes, looking for translocations, inversions, anything that would potentially create an imbalance when that genetic material goes to be duplicated and then divided equally amongst two cells. Um, and the second type of testing is, is something called Y-chromosome microdeletion testing. Um, we know that the majority of the genes that are involved in sperm production are housed on the Y chromosome, which is actually a fairly fragile chromosome when you compare it to the X chromosome, right? So it's prone to deletions and duplication, uh, not duplications, deletions, mutations. Um, and so we want to make sure that we are finding those defects when they do occur. That certainly has implications for what we do for that couple. Certain specific Y chromosome microdeletions are simply not compatible with sperm production. And so in those cases, we need to counsel these couples fairly early on that other methods of family building should be considered. Um, and sometimes these mutations are compatible with sperm production, but they would also be passed on to the next generation, which is also important for couples to understand. So genetic testing, you know, plays a big role um, in, in the fertility evaluation. And, and when you, you talk a little bit about physical exam and you, you very nicely sort of delineated the, the two sort of scenarios, the obstructive and the non-obstructive scenario, what about um, maybe broadly, what, you know, what is the definition of, of recurrent pregnancy loss? Like what, you know, how many, how many, um, how many incidents or how many events is that? And is that another factor that would cause you to say, maybe we need to do some greater investigation here to identify an underlying genetic mutation that may be contributing? Yeah, so um, this is an area where these new guidelines, again, set themselves apart from the previous um, you know, version of the best practice statements. 
a lot of evidence has accumulated in this area. And we technically define recurrent pregnancy loss as two or more uh, losses. Um, however, you know, now with the uptick in the use of IVF, you know, sometimes IVF failure or recurrent IVF failure gets grouped into this category mm -hmm. as well. So it may not have necessarily even led to embryo implantation and then formal pregnancy loss if couples are going through multiple cycles of IVF and we don't see embryo development or very poor embryo development, not even getting to the stage where we would be able to implant that embryo, that scenario is also something where we should consider further testing because a repeat IVF cycle takes a tremendous toll on these couples, you know, financially, physically, psychologically. Um, in this case, for the men, we recommend, again, karyotype evaluation because everything can be normal on the surface, but if there is an imbalance in how those in how that chromosome complement exists within the cell, the men may be asymptomatic. But again, when that cell goes to divide, you know, all of a sudden we have an imbalance in the number of, of chromosomes and that gamete that we're generating is now abnormal. So karyotype evaluation is important. The second type of test that we um, recommend, and I referred to this earlier, is sperm DNA fragmentation testing, which is not so much a, a genetic test, but really a test of the quality of the DNA contained within that sperm. Um, and this is sort of an umbrella um, label around a family of tests. They are all slightly different, but they're all trying to get to the same eventual issue, which is what is the quality of that DNA contained within the sperm? Are there areas where that DNA is broken or prone to breakage so that when that gamete union happens, the sperm fertilizes the egg, is that going to lead to a healthy embryo or is that embryo going to be one that doesn't develop quite as well, looks poor quality, and then never really grows to the blastocyst stage for implantation? Um, so sperm DNA fragmentation is a different category of tests. We use it to inform um, our patients about their likelihood of IVF success and also to sort of try to think about whether other interventions are needed. You know, sometimes if uh, patients need just a little bit more evidence as to how much their lifestyle is impacting their sperm quality or just a little more motivation to get that varicocele treated, then these tests are useful. But I also stress to patients that if we know that something modifiable should be modified, you know, we should not necessarily wait for these tests to happen. Mm -hmm. We should just fix that issue. Um, but, but sometimes, as you know, patients seeing objective data helps them very much. So, Sure. So just a really practical question, which is, so much of this entire process is predicated on your semen analysis findings. So just tell us, you know, what in your practice, or maybe this is well standardized, what are your, when, when a patient's giving a semen analysis and you're trying to render a decision, is there a certain amount of abstinence before giving the specimen? Is there a certain time of the day? If that test is abnormal, do you wait a certain amount of time? And what is that until you retest before you go down this entire road of further evaluation? 
just a real practical question for our listeners. Yeah, this is a, this is a great question because again, not one that comes up unless you are giving patients instructions to do this, right? So we recommend an abstinence period between two to five days. Um, and there's a reason for that. So less than two days of abstinence usually dilutes out that specimen. Mm. This is also the reason why when we recommend timed intercourse for couples, we are recommending every other day um, intercourse frequency, not multiple times a day. Um, and on the other end, sort of the five-day uh, recommendation comes from the fact that beyond five days, sperm are technically quote-unquote, old sperm. So we can see a decrease in sperm quality that is not really reflective of what is going on in the testis, but is simply a function of the fact that they've been sitting around in the reproductive tract for a prolonged period of time. So you can see a decrease in motility and even sperm morphology beyond that five-day window. So two to five days is sort of ideal frequency. If um, they come in and there is an abnormality on the semen analysis, I almost always recommend a second collection because there could be a problem with the actual collection. For couples who are collecting for the first time, patients are sometimes sort of unaware of the process. They may have an incomplete collection. They may not adhere to the recommendations. So a second collection kind of makes up um, for that uh, you know, oversight or overste uh, overstep. And um, it also allows men who may have had some, you know, insult to the testis to recover from that insult. So for mm -hmm. example, they were sick with COVID or they had the flu and that really sort of did a number on their body and they need time to recover from that from a systemic perspective. Well, that second collection down the road um, can help show an improvement in those semen parameters. And because one cycle of sperm production is so long, approximately three months, um, I generally recommend they wait at least six to eight weeks between collections. Mm. We've really given them the benefit of that time period for recovery. So, if you have a patient and, and you have several abnormal semen analyses and you, you, your, your suspicion is this is a subfertile patient, um, what, what tests should be ordered? What, what, what hormonal tests help you sort of get a sense of, are you going down the obstructive or the non-obstructive route? And, and maybe the related factor is, what should we or should we not be thinking about as supplements that may help their fertility once you have those hormonal parameters? Yeah. So this is obviously the most important questions for patients, right? This is what they want to know when they get that abnormal semen analysis result. Um, right off the bat, the hormonal tests that we should think about are testosterone and FSH. And here, helping the patients understand what the male reproductive axis looks like is, is really important. Um, you know, testosterone levels, we typically want them to be about 300 on average. I mean, there's some leeway there because every lab is different, but approximately 300 is a number we're looking at, um, and they should be above that. And uh, FSH levels in men should be pretty low, um, technically under seven. And here patients get very confused because almost every lab that reports an FSH, the reference range is actually reported for women. So it's yeah. quite large. Um, so they may see the upper limit of that reference range as being 18 or 20 or 21. And they think, oh, I'm sitting at 12. I'm totally normal. 
but they're not, you know, that is an abnormal number for men. So that giving them that education and that counseling, even before they have seen their results, really helps them digest the result when it comes through. And the combination of high FSH and low testosterone makes us think more about a production issue, something inherent to the testis. Um, whereas a combination of normal testosterone and normal FSH makes us think about uh, an obstruction issue. So they are producing okay, but there's some blockage in the reproductive tract, anatomic uh, blockage that's causing us to see abnormal parameters on the semen analysis. And so, so obviously in, in these patients, uh, testosterone supplementation would not be good, right? It's probably going to negatively feed back the entire access. Are there other hormonal therapies that are not testosterone, but things that can stimulate the axis that might be of benefit in these scenarios? Yes. Um, so I cannot overemphasize the importance of not giving these patients testosterone. And much work has been done in this area in terms of educating um, primary care physicians, even urologists against this practice, but we do see patients with you know, reasonable frequency on a weekly basis who have come in and, and have been on testosterone supplementation um, started sometimes for the purpose of treating infertility. So definitely get those patients off testosterone if they're already on it. Do not start them on testosterone if you are thinking about it and they tell you they're interested in future fertility. There are some other medications that we can use for patients who are hypogonadal, so they have low testosterone levels. And these medications are, you know, fall into the category of SERMs, so selective estrogen receptor modulators um, and or aromatase inhibitors are used fairly frequently uh, for, for men who are desiring future fertility and who have low testosterone. It's important to counsel uh, our patients that a um, a, I'm missing the right word. It's important to counsel our patients that these supplements are actually off-label use in men. So when the studies were initially done for these supplements, they were done in women. They have safely been used in men for years and years and years, but they don't actually have that FDA approved label. They may read that somewhere in the literature and it may worry them. So I always tell them that beforehand. They work the same way in the male reproductive axis as they do in the female reproductive axis, which for SERMs, the, the method there is that it raises LH and FSH levels and therefore raises testosterone levels and hopefully raises sperm production as well. Um, aromatase inhibitors are blocking the conversion of testosterone to estrogen, so it's decreasing negative feedback at the pituitary level and therefore, you know, emphasizing this axis again. Um, and having that methodology, I feel, un helps patients understand why they're on these medications and why they're not on testosterone. Um, for some time, uh, you know, physicians were using these uh, medications in the case of idiopathic infertility. So we don't know why these patients are infertile. Let me give them these medications and it may help them. But these new guidelines really sort of advise against that practice. The benefit in those cases of using these medications is slim to none. And you're just putting these patients at risk for some of the side effects from these 
medications by using them um, in that idiopathic scenario for patients who are not hypogonadal. So that would be my one word of caution. Sure. So maybe the, the final point I would ask you about is I'm sure you must have some motivated patients who come in and, and they have some component of subfertility and they're interested or they're motivated on what supplements could they take that might improve their fertility. And I feel like that's like a Pandora's box or a slippery slope because, uh, you, you know, we all know that there's millions and millions of supplements out there, very few of which have been truly validated. At least in your experience, are there certain supplements which may help, but, but maybe at a minimum wouldn't cause any harm to the patients? Yeah, Pandora's box is a great way of um, describing this. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, there is a whole industry of supplements that have um, come up in recent years to promote male fertility and to promote conception. Um, there's very little evidence around most of these supplements um, and very few, if any, you know, scientific studies to support their use. On, on the whole, I would say these are probably not harmful to the patient. So there's all these fertility blends that you can buy at these supplement stores, vitamin stores, natural health stores. These are probably not harmful, but they're also probably not helpful. Hmm. My recommendation to my patients is to not waste their money on these, you know, specific blends for fertility because they can be quite expensive as their proprietary blends. But to go to the drugstore, purchase, you know, one a day men's multivitamin, um, which will help them meet their daily nutritional needs because the modern diet is certainly deficient no matter how hard we try. Um, and if they want to add on something extra, there is some benefit in terms of coenzyme Q10 as an additional antioxidant. There is some benefit uh, for vitamin E, although that's included to some extent in their multivitamin uh, as well. So those would be the one or two additional things I would recommend in addition to a multivitamin. And I try to have them save their money um, and not spend it on some of these other proprietary blends, which probably don't have much additional benefit over and above these, you know, drugstore supplements. Sure. Well, Akancha, I want to really uh, thank you so much. Uh, very informative. You are very articulate and, and explain things in, uh, in a really, uh, really cogent way. And uh, obviously, uh, as we talked about before we got on, I appreciate you carving some time out just before we fly out to the AUA to do this. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for having me here. And I'm so uh, happy to share the male infertility wealth around. Now that's wonderful. And to our audience, thank you very much. And if you have any other information, uh, please visit us at auanet.org university or subscribe to the AUA Update series. A conscious safe travels to New Orleans and I look forward to seeing you in person. Absolutely, see you soon. Subscribe today to the 2022 Update series at auanet.org university.